0: Grace, peace, and mercy be on, upon you on this fifth Sunday of Lent, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One night in the early 1980s, King Hussein of Jordan was informed by his security police that a group of about 75 Jordanian army officers were at that very moment meeting in a nearby barracks plotting a military takeover of the kingdom. King Hussein's security officers asked him for permission to surround the barracks and arrest the plotters. After a somber pause, the king refused and said, get me a small helicopter. A helicopter was brought. The king climbed in with the pilot and they flew to the barracks and landed on the flat rooftop. The king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, leave without me immediately. Unarmed, King Hussein then walked down two flights of stairs and suddenly appeared in the room where the plotters were meeting. Everyone just stood there, stunned. They couldn't believe the man they were secretly preparing to overthrow had now appeared out of nowhere in their hideout. The king said, gentlemen, gentlemen. It has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over Jordan, and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There's no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and get on with your plan. That way only one man will die. After a few more moments of stunned silence, the rebels all at once rushed forward to kiss the king's hand and feet and pledged loyalty to him for life. This story is recounted in uh, Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. King Hussein was not Christian, but as the king of a kingdom, he chose to be vulnerable at a moment when most other kings would have struck first and Nipped the coup in the bud. Hussein acted as a true nobleman. Keep that thought. As in last Sunday's parable of the great banquet, today's parable of the noble vineyard owner is less about you and me and how we are to behave and more about Jesus. It's a mini-autobiography of himself that he tells himself. So in that way, we want to hear it, learn from Him, as we are His dear dear children, sitting at His feet right now, listening to Him, and draw faith from it. As Oregonians living in the Willamette Valley, we have an advantage to unlocking the metaphor of this parable, because wine is big business here. We all know that. The surrounding hillsides are lined with vineyards. There are small vineyards and there are large ones. There are vineyards where the owners live on the property and even do all or most of the work themselves. And there are there, then there are the, are the ones where the owners live in New York and leave their vineyard to be worked by renters. Vine dressers, they're called. That's the kind of vineyard we have in our parable today. And the people who heard this parable first, the crowds... The Jewish leaders and the disciples would have all been familiar with this kind of vineyard because it was common for the builder and owner of the vineyard to live far away from it while he engaged in other business ventures. So, here in our text we have Jesus in Jerusalem. The Jewish religious leaders and their legal advisors are pressing Jesus about his authority. From whom and where does he get this authority to Waltz into the temple and start teaching people about the the kingdom of God and start overthrowing tables and kicking out the money changers. He refuses to answer them and he begins to teach everyone there this parable. The vineyard owner is far away, far away from his vineyard, but he decides it's time to collect the rent from the grapes that are harvested. So he sends a servant. Who gets beaten by the vine dressers when he shows up? These vine dressers are renters, you see. They're hired hands who do all the work on the vineyard, and they get to live on the property. The first servant gets beaten and sent a, uh, sent away. The vineyard owner sends another sec, uh, second servant, and that one gets beaten. But he gets treated shamefully before he gets sent away, which you know doesn't say what that was but could have gotten spit on kicked while he was down maybe had all his clothes stripped off of him and he was mocked a third servant is sent and he gets beaten as well but instead of being sent away he gets thrown out of the vineyard notice the progression of ill treatment how much violence and insult Against his servants, will the owner continue to put up with? The owner has every right to contact the authorities and request some armed men, storm his vineyard, arrest the vine dressers, and exact justice. This whole thing has been an insult to his honor and reputation. He's got to be angry, wouldn't you think? But what's he going to do with his anger? Remember last Sunday? Can this vineyard owner follow the same costly path the master of the great banquet chose when he turned his anger into a gracious invitation to outcasts and and those beyond the Jewish faith? What can I do, the owner asks. Well, he has a stunning idea. He sends his own son. Maybe those rotten vine dressers will come to their senses and show him some respect. Knowing how this story goes, it's hard not to think in your mind, no, don't send him. They're going to kill him. Save your son. At least give him a sword so he can defend himself. To the original hearer's complete surprise, the son is sent to the vineyard unarmed, with just his father's authority behind him which the other servants had as well, but that didn't make any difference to the vine dressers, did it? Is the vineyard owner stupid or what? he acting out of stupidity? Remember King Hussein of Jordan, like the army plotters before King Hussein, The vineyard owner's hope is that the violent renters in the vineyard will sense the unspeakable nobility of the owner and they'll be moved by it. And a long forgotten sense of honor and responsibility in their hearts will be reawakened and they'll come to their senses. He's willing to take the risk. Hussein took it and it worked. King Hussein risked death and achieved a new beginning. He got to rule another day. In a different way, and at a far greater cost, so did Jesus. This is the center of the parable. The vineyard owner is God the Father, who with total vulnerability, which demands the offering of costly self-emptying love, sends his son into the lion's den to be eaten. This unbelievable decision is earth-shattering. Who would do this? How noble a thing! But the deadbeat vine dressers have to ask the same question: What will we do? What will we do with the son? Let's kill him, they decide. Why? Why would they do this? Well, the parable says, in order that they might inherit the vineyard. Now, this never made much sense to me until I learned that renters like these vine dressers had squatters' rights under Jewish law. Uh, Three years was the norm. So if you occupied a house, a vault, an olive grove, a vineyard, a bathhouse, an irrigated field for three years, you became the new owner, just like that. It sheds light on the mindset of these vine dressers as they believe if if they can hang out there for another few months without being kicked off, the place is theirs. In fact, it seems they've already assumed that they own the place. Now, if you'd been one in the crowd listening to Jesus tell this parable, you'd have wondered if the inheritance mentioned in it referred to the land or nation of Israel. It's a question of what is going to be given to whom. Keep listening. Through this parable, Jesus is expressing His thoughts on the conflict between himself and the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and he's voicing his disapproval of them. After telling this parable, though, Jesus will remain popular among the crowds for a little while longer. They knew he was criticizing the temple leaders and the nation of Israel as a whole. This is what the prophets of old had done before. So, indeed, the inheritance spoken about in this prophecy, or this parable, is, indeed, Israel, the nation and the land. But see, Jesus isn't interested in being a a new King Herod or ruling over some land. He's very interested in the heritage of Israel and the inheritance that all believers in the Messiah attain is the whole kingdom of God. Not just a little tiny nation or land, it's the universe and everything in it. It's the whole, it's the new world which God alone rules supreme. King Hussein of Jordan was prepared to die. The beloved son in the parable knew what happened to the three servants who went before him. He, he, he was well aware, well aware of what was going to happen to him if he went into that vineyard. Luke records three times in his gospel where Jesus predicts his death. Three times. So, in the parable, the renters continue to act as though they own the place and kill the son. What will the owner do? Well, the renters are the problem. The Pharisees are the problem. They're the renters. And so, this prophecy of destruction is directed squarely at them. The nation of Israel deserves better leaders than these Pharisees. This is what Jesus is saying. And their reaction has also puzzled me for a long time. You know, in a society that valued punishment for dishonesty and wickedness, you would think the Pharisees' reaction to the destruction of the vine dressers would be, well, like they would approve of it, like, yeah, those guys are going to get what they deserve. But instead, Luke says that they're shocked. They say, "Oh, it can't be. God forbid." See, they appear to sense that they are the recipients of judgment in this parable and they don't like it. In fact, they refuse to accept it. So let's sum up the story. God sends his beloved son into the vineyard where his servants, his uh, prophets had been beaten, insulted, injured and thrown out. God is willing to give himself through his son in total vulnerability in order to win his people back to himself. This is enough already to cause us to reflect on the long-term effects of this self-emptying act of the owner and his beloved son. We are forgiven. This is the long-term effect as we are forgiven, made new, and given the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Jesus is in the line of the prophets who went before him, and he is also the beloved son, He's the agent through which the ultimate demonstration of costly love is made. He's sent into the world to call all his people, particularly his opponents, to make right with God the Father before it's too late. God the Father, the vineyard owner, doesn't respond to the renters with force or violence. Instead, he chooses to reprocess his anger and wrath into a costly demonstration of unexpected love. He comes into the vineyard himself and gives himself freely in the incarnation of Jesus, the Son. The vine dressers were hired hands who had been running the vineyard long enough they assumed they were the owners based on their rights. But they were wrong. Followers of Jesus in every age are reminded that we don't own the inheritance of the vineyard and keep its fruits for our own exclusive use. Any attempt on our part to do so makes us as good as these deadbeat vine dressers. In fact, it makes us one of them. The depth of sin knows no shame, doesn't it? The vine dressers respond to the owner's costly love by murdering his son. We are culpable of this murder as well with our sin. But it is the sin for which Christ bled and died to wash away and clear. The fruits of the vineyard must be offered by the owner. And in response, we offer obedience to the Son. Because we do not deserve the inheritance, yet we get it as followers of Jesus. What do we owe Him? Our thanks? Certainly. Our obedience? Absolutely. Last thing now about the stone, because that's how the parable ends. The stone, which is Jesus, has become the foundation stone. He's the head of the corner of the temple, the stone which holds up all the other building blocks. The parable focuses on the demise of the temple leaders, not of the people. The crowds hear Jesus speaking this and continue to support Him and protect Him. The vineyard is not destroyed, rather a change of leadership is promised. When Jesus dies on the cross, He becomes the temple and will send His Holy Spirit into you and me and all believers, and we become temples for Him to live in. He becomes our chief high priest. And because He lives for us and in us, we in turn are able to love one another, encourage each other in faith and in life, and endure to the end where we will live again eternally. What a great parable to draw faith from, huh? So now let's have some wine from the vineyard. Amen.